Oopsla Podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla Conference in Montreal, Canada. For more information, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. My name is Steve Metzger. I have the pleasure of introducing Kathy Sierra. Kathy, with her partner, Bert Bates, and assorted friends, created the Head First series of books. If you haven't looked at those, I will encourage you to do so. Uh, they really represent a rethink of what a book is, what, what the word book means, what books are for, and how they're used. Uh, they have sold fabulously. And beyond that, if you would look at the Amazon reviews, you'll see that they touch a lot of lives, that people read these books and then go directly to pass certification exams. So the books are fun and educational things uh, that Kathy has shown go together. So please help me in welcoming Kathy Sierra. Um, I'm going to talk about creating passionate users. That's the thing that Bert and I have been working on for quite a number of years. Uh, But first, I want to think about why y'all are here. This is a technical conference, and I'm assuming that, uh, you know, someone's blogging it. Probably several of you are blogging it. It's on Twitter. There's an Oopsla Twitter. People are chatting about it. There's really no reason for any of you to be here. You guys are the ones who are creating all the software applications that make live face-to-face events not necessary. So you're still all here. And given that the audience is more much more male than female. I know, we're working on that. Um, You're not here to get dates, probably. So there's one reason that makes sense. This is going to be relevant to the software that we write. This is what the scientists actually think, that they, they haven't been able to completely replicate in software, no matter how high the resolution of video conferencing and, and audio, whatever it is, they haven't been able to replicate why people still want to be next to each other or face-to-face. And they think it might have something to do with smell, but they're not sure. So people are still having this need to to fill this human contact. So it's probably more like that. Um, We have to accept this. Even though, again, we're creating applications and telling people they don't actually need to have human face-to-face live contact. So if we want to make our apps better, we have to do a couple of things. We have to try to get our users involved with each other in the real world so we can sponsor user groups and other things. And then we have to make our software more human. And I don't mean a humane interface. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some other things that we can think about with our software to give it a little bit more of a human touch. First, we have to accept that face-to-face matters. And there are lots of resources for this. Um, So building online community that also bleeds into offline meetups and coffee meetings and Um, Meetup.com, if you're not familiar with it, is a great place to start uh, your users meeting with one another in person, wherever they are. So that's, uh, I think, a great resource. And there are tons of them online, and more and more of that's happening. You could, you know, sponsor uh, some kind of bar camp or, you know, something related to your topic, uh, conferences, anything. Now, the big one, though, that I want to talk about is making our apps feel more Human. And again, I don't mean a more humane interface. I assume we're, we're all working on that. Uh, but why? 
So we want passionate users, and I, I don't think I have to explain why it might be useful to have really passionate users, but I'm not talking about people who just say, I really like the software, or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in the software, or whatever the product is. So I'm talking about the same kind of passion that people have for things that might be their hobbies or their causes. So even though we might not always get there for every piece of software we make or every whatever our product is, that's still the goal. We're going for that kind of passion. So to understand that, we had to do a little bit of reverse engineering of passion. But to kind of get you in the right mindset, I want you to think about something that you have a passion for that doesn't have to do with your work. So are there any musicians in here? Anyone who's just musician, hobbyist, guitar players, drums, scratching, keyboards? Okay. So then you might understand this quote by Carlos Santana. Any digital photographers in here or anyone who's in photography? Okay, more and more. You might understand this quote. (laughs) So it's that feeling of passion. Last time I did this, someone said, programmers don't look like that. (laughs) So you have to think about what kind of passion do you have or did you have in the past? And what did that really feel like? And what were the attributes around that passion. And so that's what we've tried to make a study of, is if we could really reverse engineer, as only geeks would do, passion, and look at what are the common characteristics across things that people have a passion for. What do you find when you find passion? And maybe we can use that as a roadmap and figure out how to drive that instead of just waiting and hoping that it will emerge. So think about what you have a passion for. So here are some of the things that we found wherever we find passion. And these are some of the things that we're going to talk about. But this is the most important one. So the point is, nobody is passionate about something they suck at. And so when you think about your users and how good they are at doing whatever it is they do with your product, we're nowhere near helping people become passionate if they're still in the I suck phase. So we have to think about all the milestones that our users are going to go through, beginning with can we even get them to try it the first time, all the way up to can they potentially become passionate about it, or at least be on their way. So we'll talk about that. Now, one of the things we looked at is what is so engaging about having a passion for something? What really hooks people when they become passionate? Why, why do they reach a certain tipping point where uh, they'll do anything they can to get better at whatever it is that they're passionate about? They'll do anything to learn more. To, they can justify anything. They can justify spending any amount of money. They can justify coming to a conference, whatever it is. It's, and it's uh, that passion, a passion for something, when you get better at something, it gives you a higher resolution experience of whatever that thing is. So you, you just have more bit depth for that experience. So, for example, people who really appreciate jazz or classical music, they can hear notes that the rest of us can't hear. They can hear, well, actually, uh, my husband and I both are, are kind of mixing audio geeks. Um, so, you know, whenever we go to a conference, it's real, uh, a uh, 
concert, it's really annoying because we're, we're thinking, God, if I could just get my hands on the faders, you know, I could, I could mix that just a little bit better. I, I probably couldn't, but it, it's tempting. So, but that's also something that, that creates a higher resolution experience for me. Uh, this is the front man for Radiohead, Tom York. We used to have a lot of Radiohead CDs laying around the house. I have two teenagers. Uh, my youngest daughter went to the Bonnaroo Music Festival, where I'm sure there was no alcohol, and she said that uh, when she came back, after listening, she, I mean, she liked Radiohead, but after listening to them live, she came back, played their CDs, and she could swear that she heard things in the music that she hadn't heard before, as if the, the CD had been remastered. She was hearing notes and tones and things that she hadn't heard before. This is in Yosemite, Half Dome, drove through there with um, Bert, uh, who used to be a rock climber. I never was. And when I saw this, I thought, okay, there's Half Dome. That's cool. He started seeing all these things when he was looking at this, the face of this. And I saw a, a really big rock. So for him, this rock experience had a lot more resolution. These things are so inherently interesting and exciting and compelling for people. So uh, that's one of the reasons that we're trying so hard to create passionate users, because we're giving people a higher resolution experience. Um, I just came back actually from a horse show in Los Olivos where, the, uh, where the, the movie Sideways. How many of you have seen the movie Sideways? Yeah, okay. Um, actually went to the little restaurant that they had there with the wine bar on the side. And I don't know anything about wine. I don't, I'm not even sure that I believe this when people talk like this. And then I heard Martin Fowler in the hallway. So for him, <laughs> wine, it, I don't really mean that. Um, I just couldn't resist. So... Uh, you know, for the imaginary Martin Fowler, wine is a, is a one-bit experience for him. It's either red or white. Whereas for some people, it's got all that going on. So this is what we're shooting for. This diagram is the most important one that we use when we're working with our clients or our co-authors. Uh, when we're thinking about our users, is how do we get people through this milestone of the first time up through the suck threshold where they just no longer suck? The problem is, even in that middle region, that's where we have another problem, because people get stuck there where they're just competent enough. They can do things a certain way, it works, and this is why we have trouble getting people to upgrade. Because once they've crossed over the suck threshold, they don't ever want to go back again, even for a moment. So they're quite happy to keep doing things the old way, the inefficient way, the way that doesn't work any longer, and then some new kid on the block comes along, and uh, they're afraid of, of dipping back down to that suck threshold by trying to learn something new once they've got something working. So we really have to think about how to keep pushing people further and further up that curve. So if all things are equal, and you have two companies that have kind of competing products, Whoever gets their users up that curve the quickest will probably win. So who will get them past the suck threshold more quickly? And again, that time span, of course, is relative to how complex the, the product, or more importantly, what they do with the product is. But for, for two things being equal, whoever can get their users up the curve more quickly will probably win. And if they don't cross that passion threshold... Uh, well, actually, the good news is once they do cross the passion threshold, you're kind of off the hook for helping them. That's when they start finding ways to help themselves learn and get better and practice, and, and you don't have to support them. 
Uh, so that's our job. How fast can we move them up, and how can we do that? But this is probably the single biggest problem that we see with our clients is even when they get that, uh, they focus on teaching their tool. They focus on saying, okay, I'll, I'll help make our users experts at using our tool. When no one really cares about your tool, they care about whatever it is that your tool supports, whatever your tool lets them do. So it's, it's not about what they... Uh, it's not about how good they become at using the tool. It's about how good they become at what they're using the tool to do. That's where the passion is. So uh, I'm going to look at the example of cameras. Uh, this is Nikon. They have a learning site, which now it's actually almost impossible to find because they haven't been able to update it. But for example, it, it was just an awesome site for how to learn how to use the features of a digital SLR to take really amazing pictures. So, for example, when I first saw that picture, and I had my little, you know, point and click, I saw that picture with the flowy water, and I said, oh, I have to be able to do that. So what Nikon was teaching me in this little educational website was why I needed to spend another $1,000 so that I could get shutter speed control. So they did a great job of, of, of teaching me why I needed to spend a lot more money because they taught me how to appreciate and, and actually to convince me that I could do that. They didn't tell me about all the other stuff I had to do to make that happen. But um, this is what their manual looks like. This is what the manual looks like for one of their most expensive um, consumer high-end cameras. It doesn't have anything to do with taking pictures. It's all about the camera. So their actual manual, it, it, in fact, it doesn't even do a really good job at that. It has nothing to do with taking pictures. I don't want to be a camera expert. I want to be able to take really good pictures with the camera that I know is capable. So I went to a um, training course at the, the camera store where I bought my, I have a Nikon D200 now, which is way ahead of where I actually am. And they had this free training course for people who had a digital SLR. And every single person in the room, when they went through introduction, said, I know my camera can do a lot more than I'm capable of doing. I'm still keeping it in automatic or program mode. So if Nikon had done a better job of reaching out and saying, here's how to use those features, here's how to become a better photographer, people would be buying more expensive cameras. So the bottom line is being better is just more fun. Being better is better. So what can we do to get people to be better, but not at the tool, at going beyond that and helping them be better at whatever your tool is letting them do. They don't want to be experts at spreadsheets. They want to be experts at modeling their business or whatever it might be. So think always, what can I help my users kick ass at? Whatever that is, what can I help them be better at? What can I help them have a better, higher resolution experience doing? And then we have to talk about how to do it. So the first roadblock that we have is the user's brain. And their brain just gets in the way of everything. So, first of all, one myth that we have to banish. This is what most men think. This is what's true. Most people, no, actually that's not true. All people are operating so largely at an unconscious level. And we have to reach through to their brain. We can't just be talking to their logical mind. And no one is worse at that than the geek community. 
we're always assuming people are, are thinking logically and rationally, including ourselves, and we're appealing to them on this logical, rational level that's not working. So geek points for whoever knows who, who uh, said this quote. And if you want proof, we can rationalize anything. So we have a legacy brain. It has no idea that we're living at this current time. It thinks we're still living in caves. It thinks we still care about tigers that are going to eat us and you know whether this guy's going to beat us over the head with a club. Your mind thinks that it's important to learn uh, the next Java API. Well, that may be debatable. But your brain certainly is not in agreement. That's the big problem. Your brain has a crap filter. And we now know this biochemically your brain has a crap filter. One of the things that's come out of memory research in the last 10 years, 10 to 15 years, is that there, there's chemistry involved in making sure that you don't remember things, that things don't get through. So if there's active chemistry trying to block things from being recorded, then we have to think, well, then what is getting through? If the brain has a crap filter, what is it filtering out, and who's in charge of telling it what to pay attention to? And unfortunately, because we all know this from studying in college, it's not our conscious mind that's in charge of what we should be paying attention to. It's the brain. So we have to think about it. If you were a legacy brain, chemistry would tell you that this thing must be worth paying attention to. So the brain's not making a, a, a rational decision about whatever this thing is. The brain is saying, I don't know, but there was a surge of chemicals. This thing must be important because that person is feeling something. So anything that we feel, even in the slightest little bit, anything that causes a reaction to wake up the brain is something that our users are going to pay attention to. So I'm just going to run through a real quick set of things the brain cares about. It cares about things that are odd, things that are different, things that it doesn't quite expect. So anything that's a little bit unusual or unexpected. So here your eye is drawn to the thing that stands out as being different. Not because it's purple, but because it's the one purple thing. Scary things, our brains are tuned to pay attention to scary things. Nobody had to learn to be afraid of that. Thrilling things, the brain loves exciting, thrilling things. That's the obvious one. Brains are tuned to pay attention to things that look, you know, young and, and uh, helpless. Babies, otherwise we would all leave our babies in the backyard for long periods of time. Um, puppies, same thing. Our brains are tuned to pay attention to the experience of joy and happiness because that signifies play. Play signifies learning to the brain, so the brain has rewarded that. So when the brain says, aha, Whatever you're doing is causing you to have some experience of joy or pleasure. That's a good thing. I'll reward that. I'll pay attention to that because whatever it is, it's probably good. So any little, that, just that tiniest little feeling right there, that's enough to cause the brain to do a little micro wake up. By the way, very sick man Andy Riley has two of the funniest books I've ever seen on bunny suicides. Like, the first book wasn't enough, so he has a sequel. And they're, they're really good. It's amazing how inventive you can be about that. So the brain is really tuned to pay attention to faces. So these are things we, for example, we use faces in our books, in our technical books, because it's something the brain pays attention to. The brain says, there's a face. I have to pay attention to that. That's important. The brain knows that whatever that guy's looking at, it doesn't want to see what that is. The brain should be able to recognize what that is. And it doesn't matter if it's human. So what does the brain 
not care about. Code. The brain absolutely thinks code is so not life-threatening, not life-sustaining, has nothing to do with propagating the species. It's just not interesting at all. So the brain sees this. I don't know if anyone recognized the error in that code. So, but the brain pays attention to that face. So, for example, in some of our learning materials, we'll say, well, the brain cares about the face, doesn't care about the code. Maybe if we put the face with the code, the brain will say, I don't know why this code is important, but she obviously thinks it is, so I'm going to pay attention. Little, you know, cheap tricks to try to, to make the brain think that code is just as important as a tiger. Again, we're never going to actually get there, but we'll just throw anything at it we can to try to get our users, our learners, to pay attention. Brains don't care about UML. They just don't care. But anyone who's a software developer will have a, a kind of visceral reaction when they see this. So this, for example, is a diagram uh, in our design patterns book. And we want the learner to be able to hit that page and have that kind of, oh, creepy feeling. To tell the brain whatever led to this was a bad idea. <laughs> so we're constantly trying to take advantage of talking to the brain. Conversational language beats formal language. I know I've talked about this a lot, and I know intuitively we all know this, but there are studies that prove that when you switch from a very formal tone to just a slightly more conversational tone. And I mean, the, the studies use very subtle changes, like substituting the word you for uh, something like, you know, when one builds a, and substituting when you build a. So not, not drastic changes, little subtle changes. People had between 20 and 46% more success at what they call transfer problems, which means they were able to apply what they had learned to something new, when the language was conversational. And the leading theory right now is that, that the reason that works is that if you're reading a book and it has a very formal tone versus conversational, if it's conversational, your brain, and think about your documentation now, your brain says, oh, I'm, I'm in a conversation, so I have to hold up my end, so I have to pay attention, I have to stay with it. So it's just one more little thing to try to keep the brain engaged. And all those things add up. So our goal all the time is try to talk to the, to the user's mind, uh, or excuse me, to the user's brain, not their mind. And if you want to read a really scary book about all the ways your brain deceives you, this is a great book called A Mind of Its Own, How Your Brain Distorts and Deceives. And one classic example is how, you know, we all estimate we're above average at whatever it is, when uh, clearly that's not true. Uh, so this applies to everything we do. So let's look at some user milestones. Again, we have the first time up to the suck threshold, then we have from the suck threshold beyond. So those are the ones we're going to talk about because they have different needs. Any snowboarders or skiers in here? So you have to wonder, why does anyone ever snowboard the second time? Because this is what the first time feels like. For me, it was about three days of that. So it's terrible, it's painful, it's humiliating, it's awful. Why does anyone do that again? And now think about your software and think, or whatever your product is and think, a lot of times this is how the user feels. I mean, maybe they're not cold and freezing and potential for broken bones, but they still have that 
oh, I suck at this feeling, or learning a new programming language, whatever it is. Why? So we looked at why people who weren't actually being physically forced would do something a second and third time, even though it still sucks. And the main reason is they have a picture like this in their mind. They have this idea of how cool it will be when they are good at it. So they know that this is the feeling they have now, but this is the goal they're holding on to. They know there's this motivating benefit, whether they've you know, seen the flying tomato in the Olympics or you know, they've gone up there and seen their friends or they've you know, seen too many you know, dumb commercials, whatever it is. They know that this is what they're shooting for. So we have to think about whether we're painting that picture for our users. The other reason that people uh, continue with something after the first time, even though the first time sucks, is because there's a clear set of steps. There's a path. So they can say, all right, I'm at the green level, if that. I'm at the beginning level, but I know that there's a path for getting there. There are different slopes that are marked. There is different equipment. There are different lessons I can take for my level. There's a way to get there. It's not like just someday I'm going to wake up and, and magically be there. They can see that there's a path for getting there. So wherever people uh, take the steps to keep doing something, even though they're still in the real suck phase, it's because there's a compelling picture of what it would be like to be good. There's a path to getting there and a relatively easy first step, depending on, on you know, how difficult that thing is. I mean, if for some web applications, you know, even entering their email address might be too much of a step. So it depends on what it is. So you have to think about what you have. Are you painting a picture for your users about how cool it would be if they were really good at this? Or in our case, our learners. Why should they learn this programming language? Why should they learn whatever this thing is? Are we painting a good enough picture? And it's not just at that broad level. We have to do it again and again and again for every single topic and subtopic. What's that picture? Why would this be cool if you learned this? Why would it be cool if you understood how to use uh, multiple threads in Java, for example? You know, why would it be cool if you understood how to do better exception handling? So you know, it, it's not as much fun as being able to paint that picture. We have a little bit of a challenge when we're talking about programming languages. But we still have to paint that picture. So whatever your software is, or whatever your product is, think about that for your users. And think about giving them a feeling that it will be worth it. Whatever it is, it'll be worth it. You'll get there, and it'll be worth it. And those are the things that, uh, that exist when we find people motivated to keep going. So whatever it might be, we'll have to think about that. So we're still just at the first milestone. We're still just getting their attention, waking up the brain, getting them to take the first step or two. So now we have to keep them going through that whole suck threshold, however long that might take. So one answer is uh, not dumbing it down. Because if you look at this curve, there is no passion possible if whatever the product or service is and the thing they do with it is so easy that there's nowhere to go. It's like people don't continue playing tic-tac-toe, but they can play chess or go for the rest of their life. So you have to think about, does the thing they do with my product, is it open-ended? Can they really keep growing with it? And you might have a product that, that you have to grow with your users, that you're adding on more capabilities. And it might be that you're not changing your tool might be that the tool itself is not the thing the user is going to grow with. You might have a tool that's just very easy to use, very easy to learn, very easy to use. However, the thing they're using it to do 
can be very complicated and advanced. Well, then keep supporting them in the thing they're doing with it. How, you know, in Nikon's case, don't help me be better at using the camera. Help me be better at taking pictures. And that's something I can become passionate about. I'm probably not going to become passionate about that actual physical tool. However, there's a psychological principle called misattribution of arousal, which means if you help me become passionate about whatever this thing is that I'm going to do, some of that will just spill over onto your tool. My brain will say, hey, I have this great feeling about doing this thing over here. These are the guys who helped me do it. Therefore, I must feel passion for that product. And that's not a conscious process. So dumbing down is not the answer because there has to be growth. There has to be a high-definition experience somewhere up that curve. Now, we also talked about how do we make our apps feel more human. So what can the user do with a human that they can't do with a computer? And how can we add that to our software? This is something that a human can do with another person that they can't do with your software. They can't make that face. Well, they can make it, but your software is like, I'm not listening. Your software doesn't care. So they can't make that face, and that face is crucial to human interaction. They can't ask a question. So those two things, making that face, looking confused or pissed off, and asking a question... Those are two very simple, fundamental, key, crucial human things that our computer won't let us do. So think about all the different ways your user might be feeling and looking that your software is completely blind to, totally clueless, has no idea. And we have to try to figure out how to let our software have that experience and then do something about it. It doesn't even matter if it's human. So let's take a little neurological quiz. Uh, I'm going to read through these because they're pretty small on the screen. So I want you to think about if any of these apply to you. I can focus on certain things for long periods. I have unusually strong, narrow interests. I do certain things in an inflexible way. Very good at picking up details and facts considered highly intelligent. Have difficulty recognizing nonverbal communication, including facial expression, body posture, and eye gaze. People often say I was rude, even when this was not intended. So you probably recognize what this is actually describing in human terms. And only in the geek world are we proud to actually have this condition. So um, it really describes our software. So look at this list and cats, apparently, on Amazon. Um, So if you look at this list, this describes our software. So if our software has this Aspergerness and is unable to, to pick up on even the most fundamental and obvious um, you know, human look of confusion or anger, then how can we let our apps know when the user is confused? Well, uh, remember nobody's passionate about something they suck at. So we could, and people are doing it, there may be some of you in this room that are actually working on it, There is a great deal of research on facial expression analysis. And you'll find lots of papers and research and even whole conferences devoted to facial recognition and analysis of facial expression. Or we could just add a button to our software. So there's a really simple solution. 
It doesn't actually have to say WTF. Um, we can let the user say, I'm having this face right now. And we don't. We might think that we do, but are we really giving the user a way to say this? So, a lot of people say, well, isn't that what an FAQ is for? Isn't that what online help is for? I mean, it's to let the user say, you know, help, I'm confused. Well, there's a big problem with the way online help and FAQs and most documentation is written. It's written for this guy. It's written for, for people where we assume they're happy, they're kind of curious, they're intellectually interested in finding out the answer to their question, and everybody's cool. When really, this is what they feel like at the moment they want to go to that help screen. So that's a big problem. Person who writes the help thinks you feel like this, you actually feel like that. And these are the people who are still down in that really, the place where we're most likely to lose them. They haven't even hit the, the, uh, the suck threshold yet. They're still in that I suck phase. So we're writing our documentation and our help and our support for the person who somehow magically is already past that when they're the people who need it much less than the guy who's just really you know, ready to scream and throw the computer across the room. So that's one problem. They're just written for a different part of the user's curve. So if it was right, it would just tell the person, you know, it's, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Something that you would do if you were there in person with that person. So here's just a little example. This is an absolutely true uh, capture of what I saw someone do in Excel. Not to pick on Excel, because this, this happens everywhere, but maybe it's less forgivable that it's Excel. You know, in a spreadsheet, for someone who doesn't use spreadsheets at all or only very rarely once every few years, you know, the thing you want to do is add up numbers. So this guy was looking at the screen saying, how do you do that thing again where you just, you know, you just add up the numbers in, in the column? So he went to the help screen and said, use the office assistant and typed in add up numbers. I mean, it says, what would you like to do? Oh, okay, cool. I want to add up numbers. That sounds like what I want to do. Well, of course it didn't figure that out. It came up with things like this. So he said, okay, let me try make formula. That might work. And it came up with things like this. No, that's not right. Uh, let me go to the regular search feature. Office assistant, clearly not working. Let me try add up numbers over here. And no, because back here we just got the same list on the side of things that were completely useless. All right, let me try and make a formula. No, same things on that left side that were completely useless. Okay, how about make an equation? Yeah, it's an equation. No, nothing useful. How about just formula? No, nothing useful. And then all kinds of weird stuff that you could click on. But none, none of it that just said, oh, yeah, here's all you have to do. And it's like, I don't want to understand everything about a formula. I just want to add up numbers. Couldn't do it. Couldn't figure out how to do it. So finally, he got a little upset. That returned nothing. No help topics were found. Please check your spelling. Try searching for a different word. He said, I'll give you a different word. And it came up with quite a list. So it had things like, what's new in Microsoft Excel? What happened to the info window? What happened to my module? OK, so somewhere. Someone actually knows this. So this was a huge problem. It shouldn't have been a problem. 
So this is what we call the canyon of pain. That the help or the FAQ or the tooltip or whatever it might be says something like what's on the left when really the person wants to say, ah, I'm stuck. So let them say, I'm stuck in whatever way you can. Now, by the way, this doesn't always have to be in software. I mean, you can even just do this with your documentation. We've seen people make huge changes in the ability of their users to feel good about their software just by changing their documentation to make it have these context-specific WTFs as opposed to FAQs. So uh, we, we now know that we can somehow have a button or something that lets the user say they're confused, but we have to figure out what do we do when they actually push that button. So the main thing is we want to try to have some sort of more human interactive dialogue with the user. So, of course, we always have the option of using artificial intelligence. And, of course, people are doing it. These two books, which, which I read quite a long time ago, Participating in Explanatory Dialogues and Explanation and Interaction, um, they had to do with um, online learning systems and, and carrying on an intelligent dialogue with a learner. So, uh, um, you know, modeling like a good tutor. And I was fascinated. I thought this was awesome. And I got to close to the end of, I think, the first one, Participating in Explanatory Dialogues. And at the very end of the project, they said, oh, but we ran out of funding, so we couldn't do the whole natural language processing part. So we just put in a menu choice of questions. And it turned out that they felt very confident that they had been able to capture 80 to 90% of what people would have said in those interactive dialogues. Again, not FAQs. They were modeling real dialogues, real exchanges that were happening between real-life learners and tutors. So if you're able to capture real-life things that people say instead of those, the, the, you know, the weird, I'm only intellectually curious, and that's why I'm choosing help uh, things that people would say, you'll, you'll go a long way toward getting people past that suck threshold. So we just need to give the user a better set of choices. We don't need AI to do it. Um, and that could be anything. And again, it doesn't even have to be in software. If you can't fix your software, you can at least do something better with your documentation. Um, so you could let the user choose a high-level statement, like, I'm lost. And then start from there. Ask them a question. Imagine what you would do in real life if the user looked at you and said, I am totally lost. What's the next thing that you would say? Think about how to ask those questions with just venues and dialogues. Or the person's going to say, why did this happen? Or I don't know what it's called, but I need it. And that's so often the problem, like tooltips, I, I don't care what it's called. I need to know what to use to do the thing I want to accomplish right now. So these are some of the things that we can do. So that's kind of the bottom line for allowing users to have a more human interaction. This is not the person that matters. This guy's further up the curve. He's, I don't know, he's using a tablet PC. I don't know where that guy is. Keeping users engaged. So, all right, we've still just got started. We've just barely got them started. Now, how do we really keep them involved and engaged and going past the suck threshold and really, you know, giving them a chance to perhaps one day become passionate about it? So what do we do during that period? This is probably the single best book that anyone who's creating user experiences could ever read. 
So this, a, a long, long time ago, I worked for Virgin Games, and we had two books that were required reading. One was Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, and the other one was this book, Flow. Uh, have any of you in here read this book? Excellent. Okay. And uh, it talks about... Uh, he, he really is the first guy, the first psychologist who really made a study of the flow state, which they call optimal experience. Uh, what is it like? And what are the conditions under which it happens? So if we know the conditions under which it happens, we can at least try to set things up so that it can happen for our users. And so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about why. So what's it like to be in the flow state, and why do people uh, want to be in that flow state so much? So the flow state is where you're working, you aren't aware that time is passing. You're so fully and deeply engaged that you don't know that time's going by. And suddenly it's dark, or it's the next morning, or whatever it is. And one of the times when this happens, or is likely to happen, and this is, this is a, a key to actually why the flow state happens, is if you think that you are one compile away. So if you really believe, doesn't matter if it's true, probably isn't, if you believe that you are just one compile away from success, you keep going. And that's the flow state. It's because you perceive that you can do this. You believe that you can do this. And you believe that it'll be worth it. So if you thought you were, you know, 20 compiles away from success at whatever it is that you're doing at that moment, you just go home and come back the next day. But it's because you just keep thinking you're almost there and it's going to be cool. You're going to have that yes moment when it happens. So that's the flow state. But it requires a careful balance between two things. One of them is knowledge and skill. And again, that's really we should be taking more responsibility for helping our users gain knowledge and skill and also encouraging community that's going to help give our users knowledge and skill and then challenge. So again, dumbing it down isn't going to help. There still has to be some challenge. It has to be perceived as worth it. So those two things have to be in balance and then we have the flow state where people are just fully engaged. If we can get people fully engaged in using our software to do whatever it is they're trying to do, then that means more time involved and more pleasurable time because all the worries of the day drop away when you're in the flow state. You're not thinking about anything else that's going on, bills you have to pay, whatever it is. They're, they just simply disappear, so people consider that a really pleasurable state. Now, what breaks flow is just anything that slams the user back to, oh, yeah, it's the interface. So if they're aware of, especially frustrated with the tool, if I'm thinking about the tool, I'm not thinking about the particular shot that I want to make with this camera. So I should be thinking about the difficult, complex challenges of what I'm trying to do, not the tool I'm using to do it with. So that's what breaks flow. And there's a, there's a book, it's kind of an old book by Brenda Laurel called Computers as Theater. It's kind of an interesting book, and she says, you know, this is true even if it's spreadsheets. We still consider that, you know, a narrative. So Steve wrote this great book, of course, Don't Make Me Think. What he really means is don't make me think about the wrong thing. So even if it's an online shopping site, people should not be thinking about how do I click the button to go to the place where you sell, you know, the 7,000 thread count sheets. I should be thinking about what would be the best color. So I should be thinking about the right thing, not the interface. And because this is my passion, I had to sneak a picture of my horses in here. This is my new baby. Um, the, the horse trainers say the technique that you should use for horse training 
and user interfaces is just make the right thing easy and the wrong thing hard. You don't want to struggle and you don't want to fight. So what do game developers know about how to keep people motivated? What do all games have? Almost all games. Video games. If you're working on the game, and what's your goal? It's to get to the next level. So this is a, an experience design that we try to use when we're thinking about a user experience, a learning experience, even the chapters in our books. Start with the motivating benefit, then there's some kind of interesting interaction, then there needs to be some kind of payoff. This really works out at every scale. So even you know, the whole life cycle of someone learning how to get good at this thing, but also on little micro scales as well. It could be every time they have a session with the software. It could be multiple times per sessions with the software or per a little piece of your documentation, whatever it is. And it depends on where they are in that curve. So you need more frequent inter, uh, iterations through that curve. They need more frequent payoffs when they're still at the I suck phase. So think about what levels might actually be. Now, in a game, levels are superpowers, often. Right, you get to the next level, and it's like now you get the bigger guns, but now you also might get bigger monsters or faster monsters or whatever it is. So if you think of the next level as what's, what's a superpower that this person just gained? What do they now get access to that's cool or that you can paint a picture that it's cool? And again, you know, we try to do this even with our programming topics. So we consider things like, hey, once you've learned how to really do exception handling properly, one could argue, that's a superpower. Now, what can you do? Once you have that superpower, well, that opens up this other world of things that you can do now that you've learned that. Once you've learned to really use multiple threads, that's opened up a new world. Hey, you can't stop now. So what we try to do is have the payoff lead to the next motivating benefit. So even, for example, in, in a chapter, you know, in our programming books, we might say, all right, uh, quite literally, all right, now that you've learned to use multiple threading, you can't stop now because now you can write that chat client. So you've got to turn the page. You've got to keep going. So in games, the payoff encourages you because it adds the benefit for going on. And we try to do that when we're teaching our users or even just creating a user experience. So again, levels should come more frequently when the users are new, whatever those rewards are. And they don't necessarily have to be explicit. There just has to be a way for the user to say, I've, I've achieved something. A lot of times they've achieved things, they just don't know it. So we need to try to somehow find a way to say, look what you've learned. Look what you can do now. Now that you can do this, you can do this other cool thing over here. Don't stop now. So we have to make sure they learn. Uh, this is something um, uh, that we talked about yesterday in the educator's symposium, so I'm not going to go through uh, the learning theory, but one of the most important things is the way we feel about users. And the reason that there's an F in RTFM says a lot about how we feel about users when really, uh, you know, it's about, the, it's about our documentation. So maybe there's a reason they're not reading our documentation our manuals. So we can make better manuals. And if I had my way, we would just take the marketing budget and give it to the people writing the user training and the manuals and the documentation. And that would actually give us a product that's much more likely to have success than the one that has a big marketing budget. 
So our theory is always, especially for software, especially for startups, just out-teach the competition. You don't have to outspend them, which is you know, increasingly doing less and less good. Just make your users kick ass. So this is a really odd thing about the backwards way we treat customers. Right? We have these beautiful, very expensive brochures and marketing materials, and then we have the, the crap manuals after they've paid us. So before they pay us, we spend all this money and give them great things. After they pay us, we treat them like dirt. It should be really the opposite. So, you know, a lot of startups that we work with are like, we don't have any money to do any of this. It's, well, then, then get your community bootstrapped pretty early because your community will do all the work. So I, for example, I know I always hate to admit this, but I haven't answered a question about any of my Java books, actually answered a technical question in years because in 1997, I started javaranch.com. That community, I don't run it anymore. It got a lot more successful after I left. It's huge. It has um, almost three-quarters of a million unique visitors a month. People there are answering the questions that I don't have to. And I'm going to mention just a little tiny quick thing about JavaRanch. Anyone familiar with JavaRanch? It does something very simple very, very simple that, that uh, a lot of people tell us can't be done. But it's been done for 10 years, and it's working, so we're going to say it can be done. The terms of service, before you join, you have to agree to the terms of service. This is the, the condition. That's it. So Java Ranch has the same demographics almost as Slashdot, but people are actually nice. Now, it doesn't mean they can't, which, again, people say is impossible, but it, it's not impossible. Now, the moderators are militant about enforcing it. But the reason that this makes it successful is because if you have a community that's going to help your users become, uh, move higher up the curve and maybe even become passionate, you've got to have people who are comfortable asking and answering questions. I started Java Ranch because I was on comp.lang.java in, in uh, 96 and 97, and it was a very scary place. And I was terrified to ask a question, and for really good reason. So Java Ranch was meant to be a place where people, including me, could learn Java in a more friendly environment, um, where people weren't afraid to ask questions. So, of course, we have a policy of no dumb questions. So, you know, if a moderator or someone on the site, you know, says, you know, just, that's been discussed a million times, read the archives, idiot, you know, they're not allowed to say that. It'll be edited nicely to say, you know, it might be useful to search the archives, but hey, there might be something new to talk about on this topic. That's okay. Let's, let's, let's bring it up again. So even when the moderators are sick to death of hearing the same questions, and of course they do want to point to prior resources, but if, if someone asks their first question and the response they get is, search the archives, you know, idiot, they're never going to ask another question. But more importantly is not encouraging people to ask questions. It's encouraging people to start answering questions. If we can convert, this is one of the metrics that we use for how successful is your community. How quickly can you convert askers to answerers? How fast can you start moving people up the curve? And, and actually, how low on the curve can you have people still at least try to attempt to answer questions. A lot of times the people who have only just very recently suffered through this installation or whatever it is, they're still newbies, but they have, they have the, the most accurate memory of the pain and the exact steps they went through to do this thing. So what we try to do is encourage people to answer questions as early as possible and, and not uh, criticize them for their answers. And we tell people, look, it's okay 
to answer a question wrong. It, you don't have to worry that the information is going to stay out there wrong. People will correct it and add to it and modify it. And then we even have documentation that teaches people, you know, how to be a good answerer, how to phrase things in a way that people can understand, how to even write essays. Okay, another aspect of community and of passionate users, we're moving way up the curb now, is where there's passion, there's a tribe. People tend to identify a part of who they are with this thing that they're passionate about. So, for example, in my house, I suppose this is embarrassing, but this is one of the most expensive things I own, is this big, uh, you know, a poster from the original Think Different campaign of Amelia Earhart. So, because, you know, Macintosh users, we like to think of ourselves as people who think different. So, it's a part of who I am. So, what aspect of your product could someone identify with? Is there something about your product? And it doesn't necessarily have to be about the product itself. It could be about something about the, you know, the founder's history or something about a philosophy or the 37 Signals, you know, manifesto. Something where people can say, yes, I identify with that philosophy or that approach. That says something about me that I'm a part of that. And then, if it says something about you, well, then you want other people to know. This was the Java One store actually quite a few years ago um, at the Java One conference. I would always go in and look at the store and see if people were still buying the T-shirts. And I figured if people were still buying the T-shirts, that was a good metric. Java was still okay. And people were buying the T-shirts. So T-shirts are really important because if people want to wear that T-shirt that says something about who they are with your logo or whatever it is, then uh, that shows a level of passion. And, of course, Guy Kawasaki always said, oh, always build the T-shirt before the product. You know, that's the first thing you start with. So I'm sure most of you know Think Geek. They have a whole range of geeky T-shirts. But more importantly, they give people a place to show that they wear those T-shirts. Now, T-shirts can be really important. I, had, um, I, I wrote an article about this quite a number of years ago, and a guy wrote to me, and he said, oh, I love this whole T-shirt thing. He said, I wear this T-shirt that has a really obscure literary reference. And he said, I know that one day some woman out there will get that reference and then I will have met the woman of my dreams. And this was years ago, so I don't think it's happened yet, but he's, he's still wearing the T-shirt. So um, the T-shirt thing is important, and it's something we call the nod, or in this case, the wink. And it's like, and especially when it's obscure, and it's insider, and it's not something that everyone will get. Because then you know that other people who do get it, they're like, yeah, you get it, I get it too. So that's why you see so many things, or even, you know, even bumper stickers or, or license plate that you know, have references that nobody else can get. So in some cases, the more insider it is, the more valuable it is. Do you have something like that around your product or your service or your cause or your whatever it is that you're trying to promote? Do you have something that's nod worthy? So this is the back of my car. It's two things I care about. Uh, my think different uh, delusion. And then um, over there on the left is probably natural horsemanship, which is the horse training program I study. This is someone who's obviously gone off the deep end. There's actually a whole book. I think it's called The Cult of Mac, and I think there's a new one now, too, on the Cult of iPod that's nothing but pictures who've gone off the deep end. 
with their passion for you know, so obviously you're not necessarily shooting for that um, but you know are you anywhere near that so think about how you can let your users demonstrate that they're part of the tribe that they belong to this group of people who are interested in whatever this thing is and again it can be obscure it doesn't have to be a slogan that will tell the whole world it has to be a slogan where they say you know this is who I am and only people who really get it uh, will, will appreciate that so tribes have all kinds of insider stories and gossip and, you know, things to be able to talk about. So one of the things that marketers always say is, well, if you want them to talk, have you given them anything to talk about? So one of the ways we can do it, this is actually a fairly old screenshot. It's now, I think, up to 11,000 Easter eggs on the Easter Egg Archive website, which is kind of fun. So, for example, uh, you know, if you type that into Google, of course, you get the answer. Um, this one show, someone showed me about a year ago. And, of course, you get the history. <laughs> now, this is um, the band Coldplay, British pop band Coldplay. And Chris Martin, the front man, he's uh, very much into the issue of fair trade. And, and he's been a very outspoken advocate for a long time. So at his concerts... He used to say maketradefair.com on his hands, and then when he was playing the keyboard, the cameras would zoom in, and you'd see that. And uh, He stopped doing that, and he started just putting the two bars, which is actually the, the logo, the equal sign for fair trade. But the reason that he went to the two bars is so that people would be curious and want to find out more, and there would be discussions online. The next day after a concert or after a photo shoot, people would be asking, what do those black rectangles mean on Chris Martin's hand? He wanted that conversation to happen. So he added something like that. Now, we had something accidentally happen that we didn't try to do um, because at O'Reilly, they didn't really give us a budget for our own models. So we used stock photography. And this model, that picture, in fact, has been in other ads for other things, including feminine hygiene products, which people found the day the book came out. And so all over the web, we started seeing things like this. And someone even wrote a post where they said, they wrote a blog post not getting it, saying, oh man, I bet Tim is really mad. I bet he's going to fire some intern you know, for not securing you know, the rights to that. You know, and Tim O'Reilly's like, are you kidding me? People are talking about this all over the internet right now. That's just fine with us. Um, for our April Fool's joke, it turned out to be a very cruel joke. We, we decided to announce this book, Head First Scheme. And, you know, of course, we all thought it was really funny, and we got more comments and responses than we'd ever gotten before. Um, the blog was still fairly new, so we were overwhelmed with the responses. And some of them were very... Emotional. Um, so the, the entire scheme community, all 18 of them, were really pissed off at us. So the next year, we decided to release our next book, Me and David H.H. And um, again, to our horror, people actually <laughs> believed it. Um, so, you know, we got... Uh, actually, in this case... Both David and I, and I think uh, the pragmatic programmers, got, all got letters and email. Where's that book? So 
you know, insider info, any, you know, giving people something to talk about, it's a form of social currency. People want to be the first person to point you to something else or to tell you some little insider bit of information. So when you think about your product, your software, and your company, do you have those things? They don't have to be deep, meaningful things with the capital M. They can just be little, ridiculous, funny things. So our brains are wired to be able to tell those stories, and especially stories about people. So if there are founder stories, we never advocate lying about stories. A lot of times people go, yeah, but our founder story is really boring. We're just boring people. Well, then find users that are more interesting than you and tell their stories. Do something. There's got to be somebody in your company or that uses your product or beta tester that's got an interesting story. Propagate those stories. What are you doing to actually put those out there? So think about that, because wherever there is passion, these things exist. These stories, these insider bits of information, the gossip, the whatever it is, those things always exist. Uh, so a few little blocks uh, at the end of the road here to passionate users. Uh, one of them, I went to a talk by Paul Graham that he gave at an Amazon developer conference that we were both at. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that he said, you have so much more flexibility and freedom when you're a startup. There's so many ways that you can behave and so many interesting things that you can do. And then you become corporate and you lose capabilities. You can do less than you could before. And that's a real problem. You want to be able to maintain that same flexibility. So actually, at that point, he was trying to talk to Amazon about how to still have a little bit of that startup attitude. Um, this is another problem, of course, that the wisdom of the crowds phrase has been completely abused and misinterpreted. Um, it does not mean consensus. It means some aggregation of individuals who have not even had a lot of contact with each other. So it doesn't mean consensus. So individuals have great ideas. Consensus usually has the lowest common denominator. Um, death by risk aversion, this actually came out of a seminar we did at Microsoft. Um, listening to users can be a real problem. So it, it's, you have to try to find out what they want without actually just letting them tell you what they want because, of course, they're not necessarily in a position to know. And this is probably the single biggest cause of user unhappiness is listening to them and putting in every single little thing. So I just, um, I just moved to, from Colorado to Santa Cruz a couple weeks ago, and uh, I don't want to unpack. I have boxes everywhere, and I remembered something that, I, and I'm probably going to completely uh, get this wrong, but, it, but a long time ago, I remember James Gosling saying something about Java and how they decided what not to put in Java in the beginning. And he said, it's something like, you know, the apartment theory where you move into a new apartment and you have all these boxes, just don't open them until you find you need something. And then you have to open that box and unpack that thing. And at the end of six months, or maybe a year, and you look at all those unopened boxes, and you say, well, you know, I lived without that thing. I guess I didn't really need it. So I think that was his way of trying to tell all the, the developers in the beginning who were saying, I can't possibly use Java if it doesn't have this, that, and the other, things which they, of course, later added. But um, at the time, they said, you know, we'll just keep it really pure. Obviously, you survived without that capability. Um, so now I'm trying to actually not unpack because so I'm lazy. Um, and this is what I mentioned before. This really is the way a startup with virtually no money can still succeed. In fact, even do better by just simply out-teaching. 
helping their users kick ass. And who cares about the marketing budget? And of course, this is one of Don Norman's quotes, is if someone doesn't hate what you do, it's probably mediocre. Now, I, I always forget to say, not everyone should hate what you do. So there, there's got to be some on the love side, too. Um, and this is probably the single most important thing to focus on, is do your users have an iRule experience? So every time we look at a product or a book with one of our co-authors or chapter, we, you know, anything, we look and say, how's the person feel when they're experiencing this? Are they saying, I suck, which really also means the product sucks or they're thinking the company sucks? Or are they saying, I rule? Now, I always try to remember that our users are humans, and they were babies once, and they have feelings, and we have the ability, because we're designers of products, we have the ability to give them the flow state. And psychologists say that the, the people report that being in the flow state, those are some of the happiest times of their life. Because again, all the worries of the world go away, and they're fully engaged, and they're, they're kicking ass, and they're involved, and they're doing something, and they're, you know, they're accomplishing something, and they're feeling great about it, even if it's just a game. And we have the opportunity to help people have that experience. And I know it's hard when you're back there, you know, and you're doing your third all-nighter trying to get something to compile. It's hard sometimes to remember that this is what we're doing for people. This is what we bring into people's lives. And so I really try to remember to feel grateful that this is the opportunity we have. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. I will take questions if you want, or you can come up. Thank you. Yeah, I can't let there be no questions, because you got me in a flow state, so I, I feel like I should give you something <laughs> back. Uh, so in creating products for the developer community, being that the technical challenges we face doing something like, say, source control can be kind of dry and unemotional, how do you incorporate these kind of techniques into selling something like, say, continuous integration or source control or unit tests into a company um, where you're, I guess, trying to engage executives and business sponsors to get them to approve their developers doing these kind of things. How, I guess I'm asking, how do you build the community at that level uh, and, and have it feed into the kind of passionate user base we're trying to build, if that makes any sense? Um, I think it does. Is, is the question more like, how can you get people um, to have this Passion around something that's really not inherently seems yeah, to be passion so, so inspiring. Guess, uh, uh, so the the challenge we often face is creating passion at at a level of where people don't necessarily understand why there needs to be passion. So we have developers using all these really technical tools, and they get passionate about it. But their management and their executive sponsors also need to be passionate about it. How do you cross that boundary? Well, you won't necessarily get them to be passionate about it. Um, Gosh, we could certainly argue that if you have managers who don't understand or appreciate why their employees should be passionate, that's, that's a problem in itself. I mean, that, that's definitely a management problem if they don't understand that there needs to be passion. So it's really two problems. Do they even understand why having employee passion or, or why these people are passionate about their tools? And by the way, we always say it's so dead wrong to ask employees to be passionate about a company. 
that's just so unrealistic. Um, you will have great people, of course, if they're passionate about what they do and about what they're accomplishing and not necessarily a passion for the company. So we try to say, you know, you're not going to have a passion for working here, but hopefully you will be passionate about what it is that you're doing, and we'll support that by helping you kick ass, by giving you better tools, better training, whatever it is. Um, but, you know, helping, I mean, you might have to walk some of the management through actually appreciating why that matters. And, I mean, that's something we've actually had to do, shockingly, but, you know, sometimes just asking the question, like, do, you know, what would happen if our employees were more passionate? I mean, you know, e- even just their economic sense, well, yeah, you'd get them to spend more time. Yeah, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd spend more time doing the work. They wouldn't be maybe so quick to, you know, just punch out. They'd care perhaps more about the quality of their work because they'd be passionate about the work, not just, uh, you know, getting their paycheck, whatever it is. Um, but another thing is stories... Stories can make a huge difference. So in any topic, and, and anything connected with software development, of course, there, there are emotional threads running through there, right? There are really bad things that can happen if you don't do things in a particular way. And sometimes just telling those stories, um, there was, uh, we had a, a group of employees when I was at Sun who had absolutely no customer contact. They didn't want to have anything to do with customers, never saw them, didn't know what they looked like, smelled like, um, even though we had a customer center where we were. And they were turning out products that had, shall we say, crappy quality. And we thought it was because they never had interaction with real humans and they didn't understand. So we made little home movies of customers talking about their experiences with this product. You know, we just grabbed a camera and we just sat them down and filmed them when they were, you know, in for some event, when customers were just in the house. Very low budget, you know, just a friend and I who worked at Sun at the time. We made this film, and then we managed to show this at an all-hands meeting. But one of the things that was most interesting is that we did it because we wanted to really prove to these employees, you know, that they were turning out crap and it was really hurting the customers. What we didn't understand and learned after this is that these people also told stories... And we didn't edit it out about how much some of these products meant to their lives, about how important it was to their lives. So instead of, you know, ending up with customers who were just railing against, you know, all the bad things, they were talking about how useful it was to their life and how important and how much it meant to them. And when we showed all of that to the employees, it was showing them how important and meaningful these products were to these customers' lives that made all the difference, rather than you know, getting after them for the bad stuff that they did. Um, but so that, that was always our solution. Just do whatever you can to bring the voice of the customer or the employees um, talking about something that's, that has emotional content to it. It's that emotional content that, again, gets the brain to go, oh, this matters, I better pay attention. Does that help? So how do you defeat passion? What if your users are already expert at some obsolete ancient technology? And how do you convince them that actually sucking again is going to be a good thing? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a challenge. Um, one thing is you, you kind of have to go back to the beginning where you go back to painting the picture Right? You, you have to paint that most compelling picture of why, yeah, you're doing it this way, and this was cool, 
you know, 20 years ago, but there's this, you know, there's this much more compelling way, but that often will not be enough because they're like, I don't care. This works just fine for me, and I don't want to suck. So the, the, the need to not suck is so powerful that you have to overcome that too. And a lot of times you can do it by just letting them know that you understand that and that you're going to be there every step of the way and that you have things in place to help make that experience uh, you know, as, as, with as little pain as possible and also that you, that you get that and that you're going to get them back over that curve as quickly as possible. A lot of times we just simply don't acknowledge that that's what the users are going to go through. We just tell them, this is better and you're stupid if you don't upgrade. And all they see is you just want more money or you just want us to do this because you want us to be more efficient for some other reason. Um, or you don't want to support that other product, whatever it is. So letting them know that, you know, we're going to be there for you every step of the way, and we're going to push you over this curve. And so quickly are you going to, you know, come back up and then be in this whole new place that you couldn't have even imagined before. But it's up to us to paint that compelling picture. And a lot of times if we don't have a really compelling picture, if, it, if we have a lot of trouble coming up with a compelling picture of why they should upgrade, that's a problem. I mean, that's a signal that, you know, maybe we don't have the right set of features or capabilities. But chances are there's a good reason. It's just they don't, they haven't been sold on it yet. Okay, so this is related to your story about the uh, Sun customers. So one of the most, well, not fr most frightening, but one of the frightening stories I remember um, is attending a feedback forum on our product and having customers come by and be passionate and say, you know, I really love this, I've done some really great products, but you guys don't do X, and if you can't do X, then I'm not going to use your product. So how do you deal with passionate users feeling betrayal? Well, I think part of that depends on... Well, there's a lot of different things. There's obviously the 37 signals way, which is basically screw them. You know, we, we know it's best. I mean, they're in the extreme. Um, there, there's certainly lots of history, although this is not what I'm advocating, but there's lots of history that says that a lot of users say that but don't actually follow through. Right? They say, this is it, you have to put this in or I'm leaving. You have to look at, well, what are their alternatives? And, um, you know, you kind of have to believe in what's, what's best for them even if they don't understand what's best for them. Sometimes you're going to have a group of users that are, you know, that are going to become passionate haters at that point. Um, and that's okay. I mean, any level of passion, you're going to end up with people who hate it and maybe have defected. Now, if you see that all your passionate users at the top end have said, we've maxed out, we have nowhere else to go because you won't add these additional things that we need to, to be more advanced, well, then that's a problem. And then they probably are going to have to go elsewhere, to, to somewhere where they can continue their path. So you have to look at, is this capability X, is this helping them do more of what they really are using the tool to do, the thing that they can be passionate about, rather than, again, focusing too much on the tool? Does this new thing they have to have, does it support what the tool is letting them do, and will this help support their continued growth? And there are some companies who've said, we're quite happy supporting passion at this level, but not at the super advanced level, and then we will help our users migrate even to another vendor if we have to when they get to that level. So it just, it just depends. But there, there's just so many people who, who say they'll leave if you don't have X, and they actually don't. Not that I would always want to call their bluff. 
Well, that answer partially addressed my question, which is going to be, is there a difference between um, sustained passion and the initial burst of passion M? And I think the, the is, if some, someone tops out and there's nowhere left to go, but I was thinking more in terms of sort of daily development and things. If you can get people in a company passionate about what they're doing, are they still going to be passionate a month down the line? There, well, all the things that are connected to passion, if there is continuous growth, like they're continuing to have a higher and higher resolution experience, then you have real passion. A lot of times you just have kind of faux passion, right? Infatuation or ooh, excitement over the shiny new tool. But if there's not really this sustained move toward higher and higher resolution in their experience, more, gaining more expertise... And it's not real passion. So the, the goal is really to help people continue to build more expertise and, and give them those you know, more and more higher resolution experiences. And then you end up with real passion. But sometimes it's that infatuation that helps them through the, I suck, or, you know, or I'm not really all that good yet, or it's kind of a low-res experience. But it's fun. It's cool. So sometimes, I mean, we'll use any trick we can to keep people going through that phase where it's not real yet. What you said, you seem to have worked for a number of startups and smaller, low-budget companies and had significant success. How do we get the largest and most richest software company in the world to listen to this message? Because Microsoft clearly doesn't get it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you. I, my partner, Bert, and I... I mean, this is probably our limitation and, and just inability. Um, we actually stopped doing any consulting work or any, um, any in-house talks for big companies because of that very problem. We, we, we kind of, early on, we were really naive about it and then realized, and we've been to Microsoft several times, that somebody just wanted kind of a pep talk. <laughs> You know, they just kind of wanted people to work harder. And, you know, with, without so, uh, enough significant buy-in of how important this was, we found, especially at Microsoft, all these fabulous people in this middle layer who loved the customers and who were so dedicated, and then things just got chopped off at the higher levels. Um, and we just heard that. Oh, and of course, it wasn't just Microsoft. It was over and over. And of course, I was basically fired from Sun for, you know... I said I wasn't a team player at one point, and I said, no, I'm just on the customer's team. Um, but anyway... Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I still love them. Um, but anyway, uh, so that's a problem. So actually now I'll, I'll certainly tell you all now who's here that our, our policy now is we won't charge a big company. We won't go no matter how much they offer us. They have to... If they convince us that they'll take it seriously at the right level, then they don't even have to pay us. We'll just come and do it. Um, so it, it's sort of that's the point we're at. It's very difficult. Right. Um, but usually it's, it's kind of that higher level. It's the branch node instead of the, the leaf nodes that are really um, motivated. So I don't know what the answer is. I, I wrote a document at, right after I got back from a Microsoft talk called How to Subvert with, from Within. I think you can still Google it. And it has some tips that came from some people working inside Microsoft at the you know, lower levels and people in other companies and people in smaller companies. But, um, yeah, it was called uh, Sub Subvert from Within. And it was about how to, how to do that when you're in a big company and you don't actually have much control over the product or over the directions. 
And some things can be done in really subtle ways by going through, you know, the goal is you're trying to help the users kick ass. And sometimes you, you can't fix the product, but you can still fix maybe documentation, user documentation, or maybe you can just get the community, the user community, to do so much support to help, you know, bridge users through gaps and lacks in the product, which I, I think is fine. I mean, any means necessary. So sometimes even if you don't have any control over the product itself, um, you can still find ways to help users, you know, kick ass. But uh, good luck. Well, yes, thank you. You know, you, you can, of course, change the world if you're in that situation, but it's hard well, to do. Sometimes the users can change the world. I mean, I used to work for the world's second largest software company, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and one technique for getting products accepted was having manage, knowing that management was going to turn them down was to find a user community, sell them to the users informally, and then have the users request them from the top. Ah, right? yeah. So I mean, users are power, and executives listen to users, but not often to employees. Well, they should, but yeah. Well, if, if, the, if the company hasn't been too successful, they listen to the users. Right. Sometimes hubris takes over. Right. You know, Microsoft has their little blue monster, HumaCloud blue monster campaign right now. I'm, I'm kind of encouraged by that, actually. But we'll see. One more. I'm wondering about adapting this to an academic teaching situation where usually we're not really trying to sell a tool, though we may be using a tool, but more a collection of techniques. Um, and I don't know, do you have any comments about how to approach that using these principles? Uh, we actually think the principles apply to pretty much everything. I mean, at, you know, at, the bottom line is people... Uh, where there is passion, there are people kicking ass, having higher resolution experiences, perceiving that there's a challenge and that they can um, meet that challenge. And that kind of applies to everything. So, yeah, we've definitely seen this adapted in academic settings. But it depends. I mean, there's some, well, we've all had professors who are like, no, this, this is about pain. College is about pain. <laughs> I had to suffer, and you will too. Thank you very much for your time and your questions. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Oopsla Podcast. If you want to know more about the Oopsla Conference or if you want to get additional Oopsla Podcast episodes, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. This episode, as well as the other episodes of the Oopsla Podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East.